1: For investors who want the whole story, this is the Corlin Economics Report.
2: Welcome back, everyone, to the weekend edition of the KE Report. I am replaying a couple interviews from earlier this week that garnered a lot of attention and also a couple company updates that were, I believe, more important for the companies, not precious metals companies either, more some critical minerals and rare earth elements, just to mix it up a little bit for all of you. To kick off this second hour, this interview comes from Monday. A new guest on the show, Bernie DeGroote, shares more of his active portfolio management strategies for his clients focused in the resource sector. To listen to this full interview, be sure to click on that Monday posting. Hey everyone, welcome in to another daily editorial here on the KE Reports. I'm proud to introduce a new guest on the show. His name is Bernie DeGroote. He is Senior Investment Advisor at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. I've read over Bernie's emails for years now, and I've followed along with some of the companies that he gets some of his clients into and how he manages and services, his clients, and his approach towards investing in mining. Bernie has a little bit of a different take on the sector. He is based in Calgary, Alberta, but he is focused more on mining. So, Bernie, since it is your first time on the show, please give us a little background on yourself and then your approach to managing these markets, especially in mining, and serving your clients, please.
3: Yeah, one of six brothers, grew up on a dairy farm in the Lower Mainland. Here, graduated to doing a couple of degrees at UBC, got into the mining space as a passive investor, and then formalized my entry in this current position just over 14, uh, fourteen, fifteen years ago.
2: So then, when it comes to Viewing these markets and what you do for your clients, it's more hands on of an approach rather than just trying to sell them on the next financing. How do you view these markets with your clients in mind?
3: Yeah, so our perspective is different. Like, we'll do site visits, we'll go down to conferences, sit down with a lot of executives. At the end of the day, like, it's all about getting the macro right. So, where is the ball going versus chasing things? So, we look at certain things, like, for example, like We're big fans of copper when you look at where the industrial consumption is, and you start to layer on electric vehicles, you start to layer on renewables, and you look at the fact that, hey, copper has been mined for centuries here, so throwing money at an underdeveloped commodity is not going to change the supply-demand equation.
2: Since you mentioned copper, I know from talking to you that one of the commodities you are most excited about is copper. So you mentioned having the macro view, more of a longer term look at copper. What are some of the key factors that have you most encouraged for that metal?
3: Well, I think getting into the mining space, Corey, you have to have a longer view because a mining cycle is long and getting an asset in development takes uh, an extended period of time. So we're big fans of copper just because you look at the the consumption it's pushing itself as you later on like we mentioned electric vehicles you look at renewables whether it's solar or it's wind and you're getting the power back onto the grid and if you look at the grade at the uh, production levels here the grade continues seemingly to fall further and further where historically let's say we're producing one one and a half two percent copper assets now you're looking at you know, assets that are less than 1%, which just means you're moving a lot more earth, the cost has to go up, et cetera. And it's getting tougher and tougher because you look at, for example, oil and gas, you've had technological breakthroughs like fracking and horizontal drilling, where you can go back into certain assets and recover more. There hasn't really been a technological breakthrough that's yielded more copper. So it's the same style of extraction for a lot of things, but it's just tougher and tougher to find where the easy outcrop, deposits have been found so now you're trying to find stuff that's subsurface which is difficult and challenging and the market's reflecting that
2: now this makes me think of jurisdictions too because a lot of the uh, well-known jurisdictions safe jurisdictions we hear in almost every metal that the easy deposits have been found how far down the food chain do you go when you're looking at copper companies in terms of jurisdictional risk?
3: Well, the problem with jurisdictional risk, Corey, is that, as Rick Rule has stated, he'd rather take on jurisdictional risk rather than geological risk. So, if you look at different countries here, you run into different political groups that come into power, and their perspective may change pro mining, anti mining. But if the deposit is in the ground, typically that's something we'll hang on to just because it's just a matter of the government changing with a lot of these areas. They'll change every four years versus trying to go into a safer jurisdiction where everyone's pincushioned the area. It's much tougher to find things.
2: So much in the copper space is written about supply and demand and the potential of the market even just running out of copper supply due to current and projected demands. But the argument being, look, there are a lot of de-risk large assets out there that simply need the funding to fill that gap in supply. That funding just hasn't come in a lot of these copper assets still more or less just sitting on the shelf here. What, what's your view on supply and demand? And again, these known copper assets that just can't seem to get started in terms of development.
3: Well, Corey, I think the mining space is is tough, if not tougher than it's ever been in terms of you're now getting a lot of environmental opposition, you're getting local slash indigenous opposition. If you look at where the copper price is and the falling head grade for a lot of these assets, it's tougher and tougher. I saw a deck that came out from a European group that showed the next 40 upcoming copper developmental assets, and I think 35 or 36 of them had issues whether they were environmental or indigenous or economic so the landscape is as tough if not tougher than it's ever been for so when it comes
2: to the financing environment look money's more expensive for everybody and unfortunately we just haven't seen a huge flood of money into any metal sectors outside of let's say uranium and a couple other ones that have run copper wise what do you see the financing environment looking like
3: I think it's extremely tough. We've got this recessionary overhang that is going to reduce, in theory, consumption to minimal levels here. So everyone's like, hey, Bernie, during a recession, we don't need any copper, so why are we going to invest in copper? But if you take that longer view in terms of, hey, eventually we'll roll out of a recessionary overhang or environment into a growth stage, and again, if you look at industrial, you look at – countries like India that we're going to eventually want to industrialize. And if you saw the impact that China's industrialization had on things like copper, the go forward look for copper is, is extremely strong. Now, what about
2: major mining companies, not necessarily specifically copper companies, but we've seen some major gold mining companies and other major miners show a bit more of an interest towards building copper portfolios, or at least some assets in the copper space. Do you see this, first of all, driving copper market, and do you see this continuing?
3: You're you're seeing a lot more vocal, expressed interest, like one of the prime names, for example, Mark Bristow there, where they've been very vocal about we're trying to get into more copper. So there's a real strong flavor or appetite for people to get exposure to copper assets. The challenge we run into, quite frankly, is that there just have been a lack of discoveries. If you look back at some of the big discoveries in copper, there are there are far and few in between. And the landscape going forward, again, we're not finding these discoveries that will have to be found in order to s- fuel the future supply. Prime example is look at Panama there with Cobra Panama. You've seen intimations that, hey, you know, uh, Barrick is looking to potentially do something here. You're looking at other names out there also trying to just get into copper. So the one theme we're seeing at our end is there's there's never been a shortage of appetite for mining assets that have copper. It is time for a commercial break for all of you listening on the radio.
2: But again, to listen to that full interview, it was posted on Monday on our website and podcast, KE Report. Everyone stick around. I'm going to be right back.
6: Thank mm-hmm. you.
8: says there's no reason why we shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there.
5: Wellness and self-care doesn't have to be complicated.
1: fix on finance and investing this is the Corlin economics report
2: all right welcome back this interview was posted on Tuesday with Jeff Christian talking about central bank buying of gold and how it's changed over the last about 20 years Hey everyone, welcome in to another daily editorial here on the KE Report. We are chatting with Jeff Christian, managing partner at the CPM Group. Now Jeff, recently, earlier this week, CPM Group put out a video that really focused on central banks buying and selling of gold. It's something I wanted to focus on with you, and you even sent me the presentation. I'm going to pull a chart out of that presentation that shows net purchases and sales of gold when it comes to central banks dating the whole way back to 2000. The first thing that really stands out to me is that we have seen a pretty distinct shift in net selling that we saw from 2000 to 2010, and now consistently net buying throughout the last about 13-year period. Majority... We're in net purchases here. Central banks continue to build gold reserves and buy gold. Jeff, what caused that shift in 2010 to switch central banks to be net buyers of gold?
9: Well, yeah, to, to understand it, you have to understand there, there are really two groups of central banks. There are central banks at developed countries that were major trading nations prior to 1971. And during that period of time, governments settled their currency imbalances with gold. So if you had dollars, you would take them to the U.S. Treasury and say, you, you know, the dollar is 6 to $35 an uh, ounce of gold. Here's my dollars. Give me your gold. So gold was used for trade settlement purposes and capital flow uh, settlement purposes prior to 1971. And the developed countries that were major trading nations back then, accumulated a lot of gold, like 1.3 billion ounces of gold. After 1971, gold was no longer used in that fashion. And so it was basically a monetary reserve asset that wasn't used for trade settlement or capital flow settlement or wasn't used to peg to the currencies or anything like that. And the central banks had 90, 95, 97 percent of their monetary reserves in gold which they no longer needed. They needed dollars for trade settlement. And so they started selling gold to raise dollars. And that trend really went from like 1972 through 2010. And in that chart that you referred to, you you can see the ending of this very long period of gold demonetization, it was called. Central banks had accumulated and had most of their monetary reserves and gold diversifying their monetary reserves by selling some of their gold. A lot of them sold half of their gold. Switzerland, the U.K., various other European countries sold half of their gold. A few of them, a couple countries sold all of their gold or more than half of their gold. They were diversifying their monetary reserves by selling gold and building up foreign currency reserves. By 2010, that most of the central banks that had wanted to sell gold had sold most of the gold they wanted to sell. And you saw a a trailing off really from 2006, 2007 into 2010 of of that program. Now, that's one set of central banks. The other set of central banks are central banks of China, South Korea, Southeast Asian countries, the Philippines that were not major trading nations during the gold standard era and did not have a lot of gold in their monetary reserves. But they became the Asian tigers. You also had uh, oil-producing nations that all of a sudden started having enormous capital flows when the oil price went from a dollar a barrel to $40 a barrel. Um, And those countries did not have a lot of gold in their reserves, but they had this massive inflow of U.S. dollars. So, they had 80, 90, 95% of their monetary reserves in dollars. They wanted to diversify their monetary reserves, and so they were selling dollars and buying gold and other currencies. That really picked up after around 2008, 2009. And since 2008, 2009, you've seen those central banks buying a lot of gold, and the central banks that had been selling gold selling very little gold because, you know, they sold what they had wanted to sell. So you had this big shift around 2010 where all of a sudden you went from 40 years of net selling consistently on the part of central banks as a group to net buying by central banks as a group. You still have some residual selling and you saw like about four or five million ounces of gold sold on a gross basis by various governments last year primarily three governments that ran short of foreign currency and needed to sell some of their gold reserves to raise dollars to pay for their imports. But so we've seen this big shift. And, and it's it, it, it's it's the same impulse. Let me diversify my portfolio, my, my monetary reserves, but coming from different angles. The guys who were selling had most of their reserves in gold and wanted to build up their foreign currency reserves, 60% of which are US dollars. And the guys who didn't have a lot of gold uh, wanted to diversify their portfolio, 90% of which was US dollars, by buying euros and yen and other currencies and gold.
10: Well, Jeff, with regards to central banks' buying of gold over this time period. More recently, we've heard a lot of narratives, and we heard it again just in the conferences in Vancouver, that a lot of people point to
2: the reserves they used to have, like you say, over 40, 50 years ago at higher levels before they started selling. And they are suggesting that they're going to keep adding, that central banks are going to keep buying to maybe get not to the same levels, but a lot higher than even where they are currently. So could you speak to where is the average holding of the central banks currently, and do you think that they'll keep adding to it to those historic levels, or are they more
10: interested in other currencies, to your point?
9: Yeah. The bottom line is that they're more interested in other currencies. And one of the reasons why they're buying gold is because there's not enough liquidity in those other currencies to allow them to to buy more for their monetary reserves. If you go back to like 1977, 1978, central banks had about 60, 62% of their monetary reserves in gold. And then from 1980 until 2006 or so, that dropped down to 10%. It's now up around 14%, 13 or 14%. And if you talk to central bankers, what you find is that is pretty much the sweet spot you know most central bankers want between 5 some central banks if they have a lot of reserves like china want like 2 to 5% of their monetary reserves in gold other central banks that don't have so much foreign exchange are are interested in say 5 to 10 or 5 to 15% so we, we, we expect central banks to continue to add gold to their reserves because we expect their reserves to continue to grow both in currency and in gold.
2: Okay, time for another commercial break. We did continue to chat with Jeff for another about 10 to 15 minutes, so be sure to click on that Tuesday posting for that full interview.
1: To find out more about today's guests, visit us on the web at www.kereport.com. You're listening to the Corland Economics Report. We'll be back in a moment.
6: Thank you for listening
2: to GCN. Visit gcnlive.com
4: today.
7: People often write to tell us what has happened for them since starting Extendivite. Allow me to read a few. In one month, my blood pressure dropped significantly. I no longer get chest pain after exercise. It's amazing, and I ordered my second bottle. The reviews are spot on. My target is to get off BP meds, and if it keeps going like this, I see a light at the end of the tunnel. So far, a great product is what it claims to be i
11: News Update. It's been another rough week for President Biden. Corey Myers now takes
0: a look at some of his recent gaffes. Biden was busy talking about Bidenomics. Social media was busy having him for lunch over his extended gaffe at the Earth Rider Brewery in Superior, Wisconsin.
9: Beer brewed here,
12: it is used to make the brew beer in this. fire. Earth rider, Thanks for the Great Lakes. I wonder why.
0: Or maybe the teleprompter wasn't working. My professor, uh, yeah, well, I won't get to my professor. But <laughs> well, look, my
8: predecessor, though.
11: A big payday for writer E. Jean Carroll, a jury in Manhattan, believing her claims filed against Donald Trump, and now he's been ordered to pay. John Schaefer with details.
2: Former President Donald Trump must pay her more than $83 million.
10: And I'm Laura Winters,
11: USA News.
13: Unmarked boxes. Go to mypatriotsupply.com today. Time is running out to prepare for what's coming. Mypatriotsupply.com.
1: Providing unique reporting on markets and companies since 1990. This is the Corlin Economics Report.
2: All right, now time to switch to a couple company updates from this week. The first one coming from Monday from Defense Metals, a rare earth elements company that announced a partnership with a local Indian band as well as shipping samples to a well known rare metals processor. Hey, everyone. Welcome in to another daily editorial here on the KE Report. I'm getting an update from Defense Metals traded on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol DEFN, on the OTCQB under the symbol DFMTF, and on the Frankfurt Exchange under the symbol 35D. I am chatting with the CEO of Defense Metals, Craig Taylor. Now, Defense Metals holds the Washita Project in B.C., just outside of Prince George. There's a number of news releases that we can get to that we are going to recap just from this month of January. The first two we're going to more loop in here, January 17th and January 18th. Defense Metals announces a partnership with the McLeod Lake Indian Band For the Wachita project, the Indian Band purchased a fairly large stake in the company in terms of common shares, as well as a co-design agreement. Now, Craig, let's just start off with the partnership here with the McLeod Lake Indian Band. How important is it to move that Wachita project forward, having the locals on board?
4: It's a massive de-risking event, Um, you know, without the support of the First Nations, permitting can come to a grinding halt as we've seen with many other projects. So for us to have them as an equity partner and it's a true collaboration we've been communicating with McLeod Lake for four years now and we had an exploration agreement and this really takes it to the next level. So they'll be involved in every part of the planning from design to marketing to environmental assessment and I, I think that's very important in this day and age um, to give, for everyone to give certainty to a, a project moving forward
2: so the indian band purchased right around 2.6 million shares in the company one of the aspects that i want to elaborate on here is this co-design agreement as you said the indian band is going to be working to move forward all aspects of the project let's start off with actual design work what will go into this and what are some of the key stepping stones now working together
4: well, they'll have independent engineers that will review what we're doing and give their suggestions on the design part. And then, obviously, on the environmental, they'll they'll be very involved. Um, and I, I think it behooves us to, to partner with the First Nations, especially on the environmental side, because, you know, that's very important to them and, and really everyone in this day and age.
2: How important is it on the permitting aspect as well?
4: Well, that's that's interesting. So McLeod Lake is a very commercial band. They've just announced a $6 billion hydrogen project, which is going to be going on reserve land, not too far north from our project. So within that project, there's room for us to do processing. If that's the case, and it's on reserve land, it'll cut down on permitting dramatically. But there's another aspect the federal and provincial governments are working on a critical mineral strategy. And part of the strategy is going to be exactly what we've done, uh, getting involved with First Nations, having agreements like this in hand. And with that, they'll be able to expedite permitting. And this is what they promised people going forward. So we're looking forward to that. It comes out in June. So all in all, we could be cutting down permitting times drastically with those those two factors. Are there any
2: more information you can give us on the six billion dollar hydrogen plant in terms of time frame and in terms of when you said there could be room for defense metals to utilize this plant what does that mean
4: well it means they're going to be accessing a lot of power from site c it's a huge project and the land package that they have there there's room for our plant which could be uh, as big as half a kilometer s- square kilometer so so they've got hundreds of acres there. It's going to be industrial. They will have a work camp there. I think they're going to have somewhere in the area of 2,500 employees working there, if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, around the clock. So, so we could utilize the workforce, the power, the hydro, and then, again, have, have our partners working hand-in-hand with us.
2: How close is this hydrogen plant to the Washita project?
4: It is just north of Bear Lake, so I'm going to say we're 35 kilometers to Bear Lake and then about another 50, 30 to 50 up the road towards McLeod Lake.
2: Okay. Let's also talk about the January 9th news release where uh, the company announced that you will ship some mixed rare earth carbonate samples to Ucor Rare Metals. Now, Ucor has a Kingston, Ontario commercialization and demonstration facility what are they going to be doing with the samples that you are shipping them?
4: Okay, so they have a pilot plant in Kingston, Ontario. Um, they've received funding from the Canadian government. They've received funding from the DOD, and they've re- received funding from the uh, the state of Louisiana. Their first step is to test their technology, and we'll be a part of that. We're sending samples for testing. If it works and they can do it at scale, they will then continue on the design and build of a large manufacturing facility in Louisiana with cooperation with the state there, and then we could potentially be part of their feed moving forward. Our deposit's large enough that we could have three or four partners in the future, but this could be one, and it's also one that helps connect the links of a supply chain in Canada. So that's going to be very important to the federal government as they start doling out some some dollars, hopefully for the rare earth business and industry. Um, I'm going to Kingston on February 5th to meet with UCOR. Uh, We're hoping Jonathan Wilkinson and his whole team are going to be there and, you know, we'll we'll make that connection. So, you know, it's going to be very important going forward for these projects to have government funding. China obviously funds 100% of their projects. And if we want to have a green energy sector and electric vehicles and wind turbines and air conditioning units and cell phones and computers. We have to secure our own supply chain. And we're an important link in that. You know, we represent 10% of global production.
2: Now, that's what I wanted you to elaborate on here is the importance of finding partners for the feed, because we have talked about the company shipping samples to other companies, but we haven't been able to talk about any other companies because, well, those other companies just haven't been public in terms of taking your feed. But it is all about, for Defense Metals, finding uh, companies, finding partners to take your feed, not just to have that comfort within the company, but what other important aspects is it to actually be able to say, look, we have partners lined up that can take our production?
4: Yeah, well, I can tell you we've sent Carbonate to the top producers in Asia, the top ones in Europe, Australia, and the United States. All of them can process our materials successfully, and all of them are interested in having discussions with us. Because, as I've said before, the world has a need for feed. We have a product that's compatible, and we have a large deposit independent of China.
2: So then moving forward with this project, I know that there is a pre-feasibility study in progress. What can you tell us about how that's moving forward when we could expect that?
4: Well, that's going extremely well. I think we, we touched on this before. We've got Hatch engineering the processing side. We've got SRK on the mining side. And it's it's gonna be quite exciting because we use very conservative pricing. When we did our PEA, we used NDPR pricing of $100. And to put that into context, all of our peers have used pricing anywhere between $135 and $200. Now I know at $150, that put our NPV up at $1.6 billion. And that's up from the, the current 600 or so that was in the PEA. So we're looking forward to those numbers. Also, the processing is going very well. We're seeing some some really good recoveries on the concentrate rate, and, and those are equal to the top producers globally. So that'll be published, we're hoping, in April, May, with the filing 45 days later. What, what
2: other work can we look forward to coming from the company or other news that we can expect in the near term?
4: I think in the near, near term, we did some uh, drilling into the anomaly that we identified before the new year. We drilled that. We had good visual indications there. We sent them out for assays, and we should be getting those back in the next week to two weeks. So we look forward to putting those out.
2: Craig, that brings us up to speed. Thank you for this update. I will post a link to the Defense Metals website. Please send me any follow-up questions you have for Craig. Craig, thank you again for your time and this update. Thank you for listening to GCN.
12: Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. Are you a business owner? Are you confused
4: by the complexity of the tax laws? We can help. I'm Dan Pilla, and I've been helping business owners solve tax problems for over 40 years. My book, The Small Business Tax Guide, shows proven ways to avoid all the common business tax problems. Don't risk your business. Go to danpilla.com to order your copy. That's danpilla.com. Order now and get a free 15-minute call directly with me, a $99 value. Go to danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com.
2: All right, here we are, wrapping up the second hour of the weekend edition of the VKE Report. This interview is a replay from Friday from Clara Resources, a heavy rare earths company that just released a PEA on a project. So quite an important stepping stone for this company. I hope you enjoy this preview. Hey everyone, welcome in to another daily editorial here on the KE Report. I'm getting an update from Acclara Resources traded on the TSX under the symbol ARA. I am chatting with Francois Mote, the CFO of Aclara. Now, Clara Resources focused on heavy rare earths. The company has a project in Chile, which this year is focused mostly on permitting. We will be focusing on the project in Brazil, the Carina project, because just on January 23rd, the company released the PEA on this project. Now, Francois and I just started talking about this Carina project back in October when the company had their initial drill program it was just over 1600 meters the company shortly after that released an inferred resource back in november and now we're already at pea stage so francois i guess let's just start with the time frame here of how quickly the company explored and got to a pea stage at the Karina project how is that even possible to do it that quickly
15: Thank you, Corey. And thank you and good to be back so soon to uh, talking to you again. How did we do this? I can tell you that it shows the advantage that has the company on knowing the processing technology, no? So basically we have uh, discovered this deposit around August with the drilling we did. And then we knew exactly what to do to go to this uh, concept to do this conceptual study. So we basically have a total understanding of the metallurgy which we have developed with the Penco module. no, we have the the pilot planting in in Chile and that knowledge allows us to advance very quick with the asset. So the first time we did the PA in Penco clearly wasn't so fast. We have learned a lot now and and we basically are applying exactly the same metallurgy of Penco to Carina, of course validated with uh, lab test results no, but it, al- it has allowed us to, to move very quickly, which is what we want to show to the market, no? that we are taking this very seriously, that the, definitely the world needs these elements as quick as possible, and we want to provide them uh, before the, this decade ends.
2: So this is a heavy rare earths project. So as I said, the initial drill program, just over 1,600 meters, gave you an inferred resource that you incorporated in this PEA. You also have that pilot plant that is working through the material initially from your project in Chile. This project is in Brazil. I understand you've started to feed some of the material to that pilot plant. Didn't you need that data to come into the PEA to come up with some of these economic numbers?
15: At this stage, as it is a preliminary economic assessment, we don't need the piloting data. Basically, we have used exactly the same flow sheet as PENCO. So just doing the laboratory tests that represent actually that process is enough to Comply that that we know and that we can produce no based on this flow sheet the the words so the 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 answer is no but definitely these bench tests that we're doing uh, in the pilot plant will be incorporated later on in the PFS. We sent on November no, twenty five tons of clay from Brazil to Chile. We started to pilot uh, at the end of December, and the pilot is running. Today, you no, know, and we will run until the end of February. And so far, the you no, know, we are producing carbonates, and uh, we are uh, waiting the results from the lab to see how it's uh, performing. But uh, so far, so good.
2: Now, let's also talk about the capex here: initial capital costs of little under six hundred million U.S. dollars, payback period of three point six years. This is all timing with projected uh, start of construction in 2027 and your pricing forecast for dysprosium table four within that news release shows some uh, price increases going into next decade so 2030 onwards that also helps the cash flow component give us a bit more understanding here on these price estimates what they mean for the company especially timing with when it would be in production
15: Absolutely. So as you say, the timing of the asset that, that we are expecting is to be in production in 2029 with the ramp up and not merging that to the schedule of prices is that the, by the end of the decade is where we are going to see the larger gap between supply and demand. And that's the moment where the prices start to pick up very quickly and, and increase uh, materially compared to current prices. So prices are going to be stay fairly stable until 2028, 29, and then they start to increase materially due to this gap. We have used Adamas and Argus Media, both independent research companies on the earth space. We have talked, of course, deeply today with them. And in the case of this proseum and terrium, which are the heavier words that we're focusing on they do not know, and the world do not know where the supply is going to come out to cope with the demand. So technically, if, if if they would leave their models mathematically go and run, the prices actually would be much higher. Of course, they are capping that because they cannot project infinite prices. But there's a serious problem by the end of the decade in terms of source, no, in terms of supply and demand imbalance. In, in And this is a, this is something that we believe very much and that's why we are focusing so much on the heavy birds. So the payback period is. 3.6 3.6 years, yes. It's, it still uh, catches a little bit of low prices between 2029, 2030, and then starts picking up with higher prices by, be, between 2030 and 2033. And therefore, it accelerates the cash flows and, and, and we get to that number, which we still think it's a, a quite good uh, payback period for such a, for such a capex. And in relation to the capex, Corey, we have a, uh, a good understanding of the engineering week because we have developed a lot of engineering uh, with the PENCO module. So this number of CAPEX is actually not so uh, high level. No, we have tried to, to manage a number that is very reasonable and that could reflect all the knowledge that we have on the space.
2: So, On the project development timeline here, the company is throwing out the idea that you could be in construction by the second half of 2027. Again, you've had just one drill program here for a little over 1,600 meters. It was an auger drill program. Your resource is still just in inferred category. So what work goes into that, at least in the near term to Upgrade the resource, go through other economic studies. What can we be expecting in the near term?
15: Yes, yeah, so we have been positively surprised with this asset, to be honest. We didn't expect with such a shallow campaign of our really would use such an outstanding rates and, and size. So definitely, the, we are very happy with this deposit. There's a lot of potential to grow the resources. We are doing drilling campaign now with the reverse circulation uh, method which allows us to get between 20 and in some cases even to 60 meters, Uh, we're looking that on average the mineralization is around 22 meters. And let's consider that this initial PEA is only based on 8-meter depth. So there's a huge potential of growth in resources and hopefully in rates as well.
2: All right, we're going to wrap up this segment here. But again, that whole interview, which Francois and I continue to chat for another five to ten minutes, is posted on our website, kereport.com, and our podcast, The KE Report, on Friday. Just another note for everyone listening on the radio. If you do want to follow along with all our daily editorials, which include the weekend shows or please subscribe on your podcast player. Search for The KE Report. We have also just launched, relaunched, I should say, our social media accounts, mostly on YouTube. We're putting some of our interviews on YouTube, So be sure to give us some likes over there. Help us build our brand on YouTube and on social media, whether it's Twitter or X or LinkedIn. You can search The KE Report, and that's where you can find us. Outside of that, I hope you all have a great rest of your weekend. Be sure to check back throughout the week for all the company updates
1: and daily editorials. The Corlin Economics Report is produced for A.B. Corlin and Associates. Opinions expressed on this program are intended solely for the entertainment of our listeners, do not constitute investment advice, and are not necessarily those of this network, radio station, or our sponsors. Find out more about this program and today's guests by visiting www.kereport.com. For Al Corlin, this is Colleen Robbins. Join us again next week for the Corlin Economics Report
10: What if people always acted the same way they do when they're driving their cars? Good morning, Mrs. Blanchard. How may I help you?
6: I'd like to cash this check. Sure.
0: I'll just get my pen Come here. Come on, and... lady. Get oh, a move goodness. on. Where'd
10: you learn to bank, anyway? Ooh. Whoa. <laughs> Don't you give me that look. It sure wouldn't be a very friendly place.
0: What kind of candy do you want, sweetie? This. No, no, no. This. Pick something already. Come on, honey. We're holding people up. How about this kind? No. What is the matter
6: with you people? If you're not going to do something I am, get out of my way.
10: Every day, drivers and their families all across the country are killed on the roadways because of road rage.
6: Wasn't it a beautiful wedding? Oh, yes, and they make such a lovely cut. Excuse me, is this the receiving line? Yes,
10: it
1: is. Hey,
6: he cut in line!
10: I'm a friend of the bride. Do you know the now hey, you cut in line. Buzz off! Oh, yeah? He hit that nice man. That'll teach you to cut in line, you jerk! Stop the senselessness of road rage. It's time we all drive with the same courtesy we extend to people in the rest of our lives. A message from the AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety.